For the next two episodes of the Discover the Word podcast, we're going to be studying two chapters found right in the middle of the Gospel of John. Now, a Bible study principle we always try to stress is the importance of paying attention to the context. When we have questions about a particular text, almost always context can help. We like to say context is king because, as I'm sure you know, taking something out of its context almost always leads to misunderstanding and misapplication. And we really don't want to do that with the Bible. Well, Daniel Ryan Day was interested in what Jesus said about being the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And so in preparing this study, he was once again amazed at how the context just kept exploding layers of understanding and meaning. Could somebody read John 10 verse 11 for us? I've got it. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Yeah, beautiful passage, one a lot of us know. And as I'm looking at all of these descriptions that Jesus is giving of himself as a good shepherd or the gate of the sheep or this whole sheep story thing, it was the first time I realized that when John 10 starts, Jesus is in the middle of a thought. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, wait a second. So what happens in nine? And then the further I rewound, I ended up like halfway through (laughs) chapter eight and realized that all of this is like this momentum building in the story Mm -hmm. that gets to Jesus starting to talk about being a good shepherd. Yeah, it's an amazing demonstration of how context is king in this Bible study on Discover the Word. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And we will get to that part of John chapter 10 about how Jesus is the Good Shepherd uh, eventually. But the title of this study, Daniel Ryan Day, Annalisa Morgan and Bill Crowder and Rasul Berry will be doing is called John 9 and 10. Because to talk about the Good Shepherd, we're going to have to explore the context and that will take us to some really important and fascinating connections in the surrounding context. Because, you know, reading big, more of the bigger story, and getting a grasp on how John's gospel is telling the entire story of Jesus will help us truly understand the significance of what Jesus is saying about the Good Shepherd. And so let's get started and start making some of those connections that will demonstrate how this context is king approach to reading and studying the Bible helps us understand it so much better. There are so many stories that we read, really in the whole Bible, uh, but for <laughs> right now I'm thinking about the Gospels where we wish we had more details, aren't there? Yeah. Oh, Sometimes what I wish for is what print on a page can't give you, and that's facial expression, tone uh-huh. of voice, those kind of details. Uh, I think that'd be really helpful in some of these stories. I know, because we tend to put ourselves in them, and then we, you know, what would I feel? What do I hear? Yeah. And it's not necessarily what was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think about those moments that something is brought up, but you don't really know why it's brought up or mm-hmm. what's happening. Yeah. And it's like, why was that yeah. there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's so many times where Jesus has a teaching or gives a parable then gives an explanation of the parable and everybody's still asking, what was that about? <laughs> and basically, often we wish we had more context for mm-hmm. what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is saying, other stories in the scriptures. Well, for the next two weeks, we're going to focus in on one of the stories in the Gospels that is the exact opposite. It comes with so many details. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a story where we'll get context 
there'll be lots of questions. We'll get a sense of what people are thinking, some of the responses. Jesus is going to throw some parables in there. If we get lost at any point, that's okay. We would be right in step with those who hear Jesus because there's <laughs> multiple times where it says, they didn't understand what he was saying. Or yeah. another spot where it's like, can you please just tell us plainly? <laughs> yeah. And so if we feel confused, we're in good footing with those who are there. Yeah. But I think this is going to be really helpful for us as we think about perhaps some ideas and stories that we didn't realize were connected before. In fact, mm-hmm. that's kind of where I, I want to start because this comes out of a, a personal experience for me, why I'm interested in exploring this together. And it's because I had to preach on a passage where there's this verse in it. Could somebody read John 10, verse 11 for us? I've got it. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Yeah, beautiful passage, one a lot of us know. And as I'm looking at all of these descriptions that Jesus is giving of himself as a good shepherd or this whole sheep story thing in chapter 10 of the Gospel of John, it was the first time I realized that when John 10 starts, Jesus is in the middle of a thought. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, wait a second. So what happens in nine? And then the further I rewound, I ended up like halfway through (laughs) chapter eight and realized that (laughs) all of this is like this momentum building in the story Mm -hmm. that gets to Jesus starting to talk about being a good shepherd. Yeah, I think, Daniel, you're really onto something important here. and, And it's a good place, I think, that maybe remind our friends who join us at the table for these conversations that many times in the narrative portions of the scripture, the storyline is interrupted by chapter divisions. And those chapter divisions are not inspired. They were added by scholars hundreds of years later, basically to give us a roadmap to find our way through the scriptures. But even though most of the time, Those scholars put the divisions in really good places. Sometimes, like the place you're pointing out between chapters 9 and 10, it catches Jesus in the middle of a statement of Mm -hmm. a paragraph. And that's not so helpful. Yeah. And I think that's why a lot of us think of the Good Shepherd passage as its own thing. And Mm -hmm. yet it, it very much ties into something that happens before that. And so I'd like to start actually in chapter 8 and then get some ideas from eight that are going to lead us into part of nine that'll lead us into chapter 10. Okay. So just to start with chapter eight, what does Jesus say about himself in John eight, verse 12? I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. All right. We need to hold on to that idea because that's going to show up in nine. Now, fast forward a little bit into that chapter. What does Jesus talk about in chapter eight, verses 31 through 32? And feel free to read it if that would be helpful. Sure, I'll read it. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Yeah, so what's basically Jesus saying there? I am the truth. Yeah, I'm the truth, and what does a true disciple do? Abide in his Mm -hmm. word, dwell. Yeah. Yeah probably obey, follow. Mm -hmm. So they don't Mm -hmm. just hear what Jesus says, but they actually do. And then chapter eight ends with verses 58 and 59, where Jesus makes a a huge statement about himself culturally. And that causes some tension. What happens there? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was born, I am, which is 
something that a grammar teacher would struggle with because it should be I was. Before Abraham was born, I was. But Jesus isn't talking about grammatical terminologies. He's lifting that statement from Exodus 3 from the burning bush when Moses said, who are you that I can tell them what your name is? And he says, I am. Mm -hmm. He's saying he's the same God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what's the result in verse 59? How do they respond to that? Oh, they want to stone him. They're not happy with this. It's like blasphemy to them. Yeah, so they want to kill him. And so Jesus Mm -hmm. hid himself and then went out of the temple. And then how much time happens between the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9? Well, we don't really know. It just says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Yeah, and you almost get the idea. My translation says, as he passed by. And you almost get the idea that as he passed by, he didn't pass by. He stopped, even at some risk to his life, because they're looking for him to kill him. Mm -hmm. But he stops in this very public setting. Yeah. And so that's where we'll pick up the story. So chapter 9, verses 1 through 5 Rasul, maybe you could read that for us. Sure. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who had been blind since birth. Jesus' disciples asked, Teacher, why was this man born blind? Was it because he or his parents sinned? No, it wasn't, Jesus answered. But because of his blindness, you will see God work a miracle for him. As long as it is day, we must do what the one who sent me wants me to do. When night comes, no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Yeah, so Jesus is repeating what he said in the middle of chapter 8, which is, I'm the light of the world. Mm -hmm. And so we can already see there's a connection here. What's the question that the disciples ask? Who sinned? They're, they're assuming, and this mm-hmm. was cultural, I believe, that if someone has an infirmity, it's because someone in some way has sinned. Yeah. It's a consequence. And what's interesting, I mean, we hear that question, who sinned, this man or his parents? We know it's possible that the parents could have sinned and maybe there had been a problem, but how could this man have sinned in order to be born blind? And there are actually some rabbis in the first century who were teaching that it was possible to sin in the womb. Mm-hmm. And therefore, by committing an act of sin in the womb, they would be born with some congenital problem. Mm. Yeah, so the disciples are asking a theological question as much as a physical one, and it's kind of digging into a question that lots of people had, I guess, at the time, which was, okay, did this guy sin in the womb, and that's the reason that he was born blind? Or perhaps his parents sinned and he's being judged for it? As we think about the Old Testament in particular, there's a precedent for the idea that perhaps someone could be judged for the sin of their parents. We see that in Exodus 20 or Exodus 34, which we've talked about. But the Old Testament also seems to indicate the opposite in Ezekiel 18.20, where it says, the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, nor the father of the son. So it's like, okay, what's going on here, Jesus? Why is this guy blind? Was it because he sinned or his parents sinned? So they're asking a really great question. And how does Jesus respond? He says neither. Yeah, he (laughs) says neither send. Exactly. And there seems to be a sense of emphasis in my translation is like, no, 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 no. You got this wrong. And I wonder, Russell, Hmm. if if that doesn't maybe capture, again, I talked earlier about wishing we had facial expression and tone of voice. 
But I wonder if maybe Jesus is really kind of confronting the disciples. Here you've got a guy who was born blind, and he's lived in misery his whole life, Mm -hmm. and all they see is a test case for some kind of theological riddle. They don't see the human pain that this guy's lived with his whole life. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So Jesus says, neither one of them has sinned. And then what does he go on to say? Well, he talks about God receiving glory from Mm -hmm. this man's condition, which echoes what he's going to say about Lazarus' death, yeah. which is so interesting. That's that's further on. Does that make anybody else a little uncomfortable with the idea oh. that God yes. would like let this guy live an extended part of his life blind just for the purpose of revealing himself? You know, and I, I think about Lazarus. He'd let him die, yeah. and yet how dramatic that resurrection was uh, to Mary, to Martha, to us reading about it, to everybody mm-hmm. who was around. So obviously to, for this man too, how dramatic. I mean, sometimes we just can't be convinced until we're convinced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do we do when we run into passages of scripture like that, where it makes us uncomfortable or where it paints a picture of God where it's not a very good picture? Well, I, just to continue that thought, if you think about Jesus with Lazarus, because that's so dramatic, you go back and, and once he turns to the tomb, what does he do? the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. is the heart of our God. Yeah. And you know, I'm not trying to be simplistic, but if we can carry that understanding into yeah. every single story. And I think sometimes it's okay to be simplistic. Yeah, I know there's complexity and there's nuance, but I think sometimes it's okay to be simplistic enough for me, at least, to be able to say, you know, the very fact that the good, wise, loving, Chesed God did it this way by itself makes it okay. Mm-hmm. And I can accept that. Yeah, one principle that has been very much helpful for me as I read some of the more difficult passages is to understand the ambiguous by what is clear. And to go along with what Bill was saying and what Elisa was saying, there are things that we know about the character and nature of who God is because mm-hmm. those things are consistent. Uh, throughout from Genesis to Revelation. And so when I get to something that's a little bit difficult to understand or seems to rub up against some other biblical idea or Mm -hmm. position of God, I should lean on what is clear to understand what is less clear. That's Um, really a great principle, Russell. You know, so yeah, that's really helped me. So it's like, okay, I don't know exactly how to make sense of Jesus saying in this one particular line. Like even in my translation, it says... But because of his blindness, you will see God work a miracle for him. So it's a little bit of a, a, you know, a shade there of separation. But even regardless, it's like, I don't know how to handle all that. I just know, like Bill said, because of the nature of who God is and his compassion and his love, somehow that holds together how I enter into this particular difficulty. I heard a teacher say one time, to your point, Russell, all scripture has to be understood against the backdrop of the character of God. Mm. And I think that's exactly what you're getting at. If we know who God is and what his character is, then it makes it easier to accept things that might be easy to struggle with. Mm. Yeah. And when we think about that in light of this particular story, the question the disciples are asking is, who is God judging here? Yeah. Right? They're His parents trying, are the guy here. Yeah, mm-hmm. They're trying to make it a judgment story. Mm. And what Jesus does is he makes it a story about light in the world. 
And we would think that based on the fact that he heals this guy next, that that means everybody's going to be really excited and celebrate that Jesus is the light of the world. But instead, it causes confusion, and then it causes the religious leaders to get involved, and it gets really, really messy, really, really quick. And you see what paying attention to the context is doing? This blind man's, soon to be formerly blind man's, story is about light and Jesus bringing light. It's not a judgment story. And so this week in part one of the study, we're going to be looking at the context around the events and the characters that take center stage in John chapter 9 and also lead into what we'll be discovering in John 10 about Jesus being the good shepherd. So now in the next part of this conversation, they're going to talk about water, actually spit or saliva and mud. Not exactly the usual ingredients for a miracle. But here they come together for an amazing result, because the saliva wasn't just saliva, and the mud wasn't just mud. All right, I want to start this conversation in a way that I've been really enjoying lately, because it's so hard for you all. (laughs) Quickly, what's a one-sentence description of our last conversation? Rasul, you can try this time. Jesus is the good shepherd, and it's important to know the context in which he said that statement. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And the disciples and Jesus pass someone who was born blind, and the disciples ask a really important question, which is who sinned, this man or his parents? And that's where we're going to pick up the story. And that's a really long sentence, Dan. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I felt like you said that's a good answer, but it has nothing to do with what we just said last. I I can (laughs) say it better, but you just threaded three sentences together with three I tried. I tried. (laughs) The reason that works, though, is because where we started was talking about how complicated the context of this particular section is and how many different ideas are happening. So, no, that was great. So as we pick up in the story, John 9, let's start reading in verse 6, and we'll go verse 6 through verse 12. Bill, you want to start us? Okay. When Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before, as a beggar, began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some of them said he was the same beggar, while others said he only looked like him. But he told them, I am that man. Then how can you see? they asked. He answered, Someone named Jesus made some mud and smeared it on my eyes. He told me to go and wash it off in Siloam Pool. When I did, I could see. Where is he now? They asked. I don't know, he answered. Does anybody else find this humorous at all? (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, especially Bill's translation, spittle. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just the way that Jesus heals him is hilarious to me, especially the way, (laughs) Rasul, when you read that kind of retelling that the guy gives, it was like, 
yeah, he like made mud and spread it on my eyes <laughs> and then I washed yeah. it off and I could see, which yeah. is just, it's funny. And that, I think yeah. it's okay for us to laugh in moments like that. That's good. It's also confusing. Was it the mud? Was it the spit? Was yeah. it the pool? Was it the pool of Siloam? Was it, you know, what? what was it the him? man's obedience? Yeah. Well, yeah. also yeah. the aspect of the people denying who he was, like being yeah. like, no guys, it's me. No, it's not you. It's, it can't be you. <laughs> But I think there's probably multiple reasons. I've thought about this. To go from being a beggar who can't see to actually washing your face off. And then first thing you're probably wanting to do is look at yourself in some type of mirror someplace, right? You haven't seen yourself. And I know those were more rare in ancient times. But to be able to see himself, he probably looked in there, probably tucked the shirt in something or just kind of got himself together. You know, when you, you know when you wake up and go, oh, wow, somebody says you got a little something in your eye. And so he fixed himself up. But then the other aspect is that this has never been done before. There was never Mm -hmm. any indication of anybody being born blind and healed. And so it defied belief for most people Mm -hmm. to think that it could be the same guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've heard a couple of different comments on this healing. One comment was, when God made the first human being, he made him out of the dust of the earth. Mm -hmm. Mm. And so the conclusion that this one teacher had was when he wants to fix something that's broken in us, he knows where to get the spare parts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that actually picks up on a thread from one of the church fathers, Irenaeus, who suggested that John was pulling on that thread of God creating humans in Genesis by forming clay and breathing into it. And so here we have like a remaking or a recreation story where Jesus is giving this person who was born blind the opportunity to see. And it is interesting that the neighbors have a very mixed reaction to it. You know, some of them think he's a a doppelganger, you know. It's like when you're at a sporting event and there's that one break in innings and they go around and try to find people around the stadium that look like different celebrities, right? And they're like, oh, there's Tom (laughs) Hanks or, you know, so-and-so, whatever. And so that's what's happening here is the neighbors who know him the best, right? They've Mm. grown up with this guy. They've seen him begging his whole life. They were probably around when his parents gave birth to him. And Mm. there was that shocking moment of realizing this baby wouldn't be able to see And so they've been there for this, and yet Mm -hmm. it's such an amazing experience or story that many of them are having a hard time believing that it was him. I think it's also kind of interesting looking at it from the man's perspective. This is the first time he's seen these neighbors. I mean, he's heard them. He probably knows their voices. I mean, I can imagine some guy saying, that's not really you, and him saying, Ephraim, come on, I grew up down the street from you. You know it's me. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. He's connecting voices to faces for the first time. Yeah. Huh. What's interesting, too, is even the way that Jesus heals him actually isn't that weird. It feels weird to us, but it's not as weird for the ancient world as we might think. The idea of using saliva for healing was pretty common, and Jesus actually does this a few other times, too. And so does every mother. Yeah, right. (laughs) I think that's more to wash their face, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I I thought it might be fun to read two of these stories. One is Mark 7, verses 32 through 33, if somebody could grab that. Okay, Mark 7, 32 to 33. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private away from the crowd and put his fingers into his ears and he spat 
and touched his tongue. <laughs> so I think it's okay to laugh <laughs> <And then laughs> to write another story again of using spit. And then Mark 8, verse 23. I've got that one. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged Jesus to touch him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, and then it goes on from there. To talk that he was healed. So it's not the only time Mm -hmm. that spit is used in a healing story. But what's interesting about it is the combination of spit and clay. And yeah. that seems to be very unique because there were some like pagan healing practices that would use clay. There's some more common practices where they would use spit. But Jesus using both of those together is really interesting in this passage. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier of why is this being emphasized so much? In fact, John repeats how he was healed three different times throughout the passage in verse 6, verse 11, and verse 15, as the man's beginning to repeat the story over Mm -hmm. and over again as people are asking him. So there's like a drawing attention to the way that Jesus healed him. And so perhaps it goes back to Genesis and kind of a recreation story. What Mm -hmm. is another example in the Bible that we have? Can I just, before we move on, give a shout out to the people who let Jesus spit in their face (laughs) and and be (laughs) ill? The type of faith that that takes, I mean, yeah. honestly, there's only one person in the world that I'm like, yeah, I'm game for that. Mm-hmm. You just saliva to smear on my face so that, and, <laughs> so that I can be healed. Yeah, yeah, where I come from, that's rude. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know. yes, it's usually offensive. Yeah, and if you remember in John 8, Jesus had already made a reference to true disciples are those who abide in his word or follow and do what he asks them to do. And so... To be a disciple means to not just claim allegiance to a teacher, but to actually obey the teacher. And I wonder if that's part of what Jesus is doing by inviting this guy to go on a journey. Because he doesn't heal him immediately, right? What does he ask him to do? Oh, he has to go through a series of uh, steps, and that is obedience. It's like, Mm -hmm. do what I have asked you to do, and that's acting it out for sure. Yeah, this guy's kind of the opposite of Naaman the Syrian when Elisha tells him to go wash in the Jordan River. He says, we got a lot better rivers than that back home in Syria. Why should I go get in that muddy old place? And his servants have to come and tell him, listen, if he'd have told you to do some great thing, you'd have done it in an instant. But he's asking you to do something very simple. Just do this one simple Mm -hmm. thing and see what happens. You know, Mm -hmm. this guy doesn't make any excuses. He just immediately heads off to the pool of Siloam. And how hard would that be for him? Right. I mean, he had to find his way there. I mean... I'm sure he had done it before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's still someone who was born blind. He hasn't been Mm -hmm. healed yet. And so Mm -hmm. this isn't an easy journey for him as he Mm -hmm. has to find his way to the pool. Scholars kind of debate on how far away they were from the pool when Jesus talked about this. If he was close to the temple, then it would have been around 1,300 yards at a minimum. So it's a pretty long distance. Three quarters of a mile. Yeah, three quarters of a mile. So it's a long distance for him. And so far, all Jesus has done to prove to this guy who he is, is he hears the question the disciples ask and the way Jesus responds, Jesus makes clay with his spit and puts it on the guy's eyes and says, go wash, right? So what other context did this guy have to be like, oh, I want to follow what Jesus said? We don't know, but he shows a lot of trust in Jesus by obeying. Yeah. We know that he's blind, but we also know that he's not deaf. Mm -hmm. So it's 
quite possible with the level of celebrity that Jesus had attained in the nation that by this point maybe this guy had heard people coming in and out of the temple talking about Jesus, and so there was some kind of backlog possibly. Yep. But again, that's speculation. And this kind of gives us a seed that's going to grow in chapter 10 because Jesus is going to say in chapter 10, my sheep know my voice and they follow mm-hmm. where I lead. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. already just to kind of hint forward into next week, that's kind of where we're going to see this yeah. theme picked up on again. Now the pool of Siloam is kind of important too. There's some kind of messianic expectations tied to the pool of Siloam. What does the pool mean? What was the translation? Sent. Sent. Or send. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In chapter 8, Jesus has already said five times that the Father sent him into the world. And then here we have a story of a healing where Jesus tells him to go to a pool called Sent that also has messianic kind of implications or expectations. That's cool. And so there's kind of a cool thread mm-hmm. as well. And so, so far, here's just a few of the connections we've seen between these chapters. Chapter 8, Jesus says he's the light of the world. Chapter 9, he heals a man born blind. Chapter 8, Jesus says true disciples follow the teaching of the rabbi. Chapter 9, Jesus asks this man to do a lot of steps to be healed. Chapter 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Chapter 8, Jesus says over and over again that the Father sent him into the world. Chapter 9, he sends the man to the pool named Sent. And in chapter 10, Jesus describes how he's obeying his Father as the one who was sent. So we see just these themes begin to unfold. And as we already talked about early on, the crowd or the neighbors have a really mixed response to this, don't they? And it's only going to get more complicated from here as they decide to bring in the Pharisees for the Pharisees to explain what's going on. And when the Pharisees get involved, it gets real messy. And that's where we'll pick up next time. Yeah, a lot of details that make up the context of this section of the Gospel of John and how he's telling the story of Jesus. This week, we're taking a deeper look into Jesus healing a blind man in John chapter 9 and see that there's a lot more going on than we may have realized. The various levels of context are adding so much. And as Daniel mentioned, once the Pharisees come into the picture, it's going to get a lot more complicated. And so we'll find out how they impact this in just a moment, right after a word about some other media resources that are available from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Here at Discover the Word, these conversations we have around the table help us study often familiar passages of the Bible with a fresh pair of eyes and apply them in our daily walk with Him. But did you know that Our Daily Bread Ministries has a collection of other media-related resources that help the Bible come alive? And you can keep up with what's available by adding your name to an email list. Whether it's the inspiring words shared on the daily video devotionals, the compelling personal stories shared on podcasts and documentaries, or the exciting adventures throughout the lands of the Bible. You can grow in your faith as you learn more about who God is and what He calls you to do. Head over to odbmedia.org and click sign up at the top of the page. Again, go to odbmedia.org. All right, 
right, so now it's time for the Pharisees to enter this story. And usually, you know, with us anyways, when we read the Gospels, we don't have much good to say about the Pharisees. But is it possible that maybe they deserve a second look? And in fact, we just may see a little or a lot of the Pharisees in ourselves in their part of the story. But it would be pretty tough to spin what they are doing here into anything positive. And so let's head back to the table and press on. So let's jump straight in. John 9, verses 13 through 17. And since it's not that long, maybe, Elisa, you could read that for us. You bet. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. So I think it would be helpful as we jump into this part of the story to first think about who the Pharisees were and kind of what their role was culturally before we begin to unpack what they say, how they respond. Because I think the way they respond, the questions that they're asking make a lot of sense if we know a little bit about who the Pharisees are and what we kind of expect from them. So one of the cultural things that I think might be helpful is to realize the Pharisees now are a group of religious leaders who had been around for a little while. They're part of the three groups that formed from an original group of teachers of the law called the Hasidim. And these religious leaders, the Hasidim, were those who responded to Hellenism during the Maccabean Revolt. So we just already threw a lot of big ideas out there. So let's, <laughs> so let's <Yeah>. start <laughs> right there and pause. First of all, what okay. was Hellenism? It's Greek. It's a Greek spread culture. of Greek culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the spread of Greek culture around the world, it ends up being a really good thing in some ways because the whole New Testament is mostly written in common Greek, which meant that it could easily spread and share the story of Jesus throughout the whole world. There is a common language, but the Hasidim also saw some pretty big red flags with the spread of Greek culture. What comes with culture? Ideas, um, beliefs, perspectives, practices that increasingly put pressure on this Jewish minority who are trying to live faithfully according to the Mosaic law. And that's increasingly becoming more and more difficult in light of the Hellenistic era in which they're in that is becoming more and more dominant around them. Yeah, I think it's really important, Rasul. And and one of the reasons I think it's important is because we almost always view the Pharisees as the bad guys. Mm -hmm. But even though we see them doing things that we feel, hey, that's not really good to do, I think it's important to remember that their motives were trying to protect Israel and Judaism yeah, for the though. most part. Yeah. And who can't relate to that in our world? Exactly. You know, we yeah. look back at this and think, oh, how weird. But, you know, what we are constantly struggling with, do we take a position on this issue? Do we not? What would Jesus do? Yeah. yeah and so that's the tension that the Hasidim in particular felt as a result. There was the Maccabean revolt, which happens 
a few generations before Jesus is on the earth. And then as a result, there's these different groups that respond differently. It's kind of three schools of thought, so to speak, Mm -hmm. about how to respond to the culture. The Essenes, where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from, they go out into the wilderness and they're like, we just got to separate ourselves entirely. And so they kind of become a almost a monastic order out in the wilderness. And then you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the other two groups that we hear a lot about in the New Testament, because these are the ones that are trying to figure out how do we basically stay in the culture but not be influenced by it? How do we keep true Judaism while also having all of these influences and pressures from the surrounding culture? And so the Pharisees in particular, what were some of the things that they really emphasized as we see throughout the New Testament. Meticulous law-keeping, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, meticulous. Especially with a focus on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sabbath was a big key, and what happens in this story? Well, Jesus is healing on the Sabbath, which he gets in trouble for other times for doing things on yeah. the Sabbath. And I've often wondered, Daniel, if the fact that Jesus does so many miracles on Sabbath days if that wasn't intentional to particularly try to tweak the kind of inside-out perspective that the Pharisees had about what was and what was not appropriate on a Sabbath day. And just the heart of God that's revealed. You know, it's like Jesus is the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of something we keep, he becomes the gift to us of the Sabbath. Yeah, what's interesting is we have two stories in John in particular that give us a longer context about healing. One of those is John chapter 5. And in that story, uh, we meet this guy who's by this pool that can't get into the pool. And when the pool stirred, supposedly people get healed in this pool and he can't get in because he physically can't get into the pool. And Jesus comes by, there's this whole healing experience. And then halfway through the story, right afterwards, it goes, and he healed him on the Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Right? Like you can hear the music. Yeah. Same exact formatting here <laughs> in chapter mm-hmm. nine, the mm-hmm. guy's healed. And then we get the key line. And that day was the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees immediately go into a how question. Okay, so he healed you on the Sabbath. How did he do that? Because this is, this is going to be important. Did he break the Sabbath or not? And how did Jesus heal him? He spit in the dirt and made mm-hmm. mud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then wiped it on the guy's eyes and then asked him to go on this journey and to come back. So there's a bunch of details that are starting to unfold. And there's two responses that we see in the, in the Pharisees that are there. One group sees this as Sabbath breaking and proof that Jesus must be a sinner like everybody else. And then there's another group. What do they see? A sinner can't heal. That's crazy. Yeah. So this kind of has a divisive moment to it because they're Mm -hmm. both looking at what happened on the Sabbath and what Jesus did. And there's two different responses. Now, throughout the Bible, do we get any other glimpses of different schools of thought, even within the group of the Pharisees? Yeah, we see it a bunch of different times, Daniel, and some of that is because, much like we tend to do in our culture in the West today, in American Christianity, there were a variety of high-profile teachers Mm -hmm. that people tended to line up under, and they would tend to mimic their particular teacher and his views and positions on particular issues, and so... That kind of problem, which we see today, was very real then. Yeah. 
And so there's all of this conversation about, okay, Moses gave us the law, but the law didn't cover everything. And so we have to figure out in these new situations that are happening, how the law should be interpreted, how it should be applied. Different teachers had different ideas of what that could look like. And a lot of times the rabbi that a disciple would choose to follow was the one that they kind of lined up with. And they became kind of schooled in mm-hmm. whether it was Gamaliel, who Paul <laughs> was known mm-hmm. for studying under, or Shammai or Hillel, which are some other mm-hmm. teachers. They started to think like that teacher and see the world that way. We do the same thing today, don't we? There's yeah. Certain pastors that we might follow or theologians or professors authors. And do you remember what the kind of collection of the working out of the Torah in an oral way, what that was called? Yeah, it was called the Mishnah. The Mishnah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think they felt the need to collect the oral teachings in light of kind of the dispersion and people moving on and even probably the pressures of Hellenism that we talked about earlier that, you know, they wanted to maybe codify it so that Uh, They could transmit it to future generations. That's right. But Daniel, isn't this what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 15 when he says to the religious leaders, through your tradition, you have made the word of God without power. They had gotten to the point where they were relying more on the Mishnah than on the law itself. Hmm. I think that's a totally possible interpretation of that for sure that because they had gotten so into the weeds that they were actually missing the spirit of what God was trying to do with the Torah, which was invite them into a new way of life. And Jesus will say soon in chapter 10 that he's come to give them life and give it to them abundantly. So the idea is that they're missing that through being so laser focused on little details. But one thing the Mishnah is kind of helpful It's hard to know exactly when it gets written down, but it it seems to be sometime around 200 AD or so that the Mishnah is collected into like a, a physical form. And so it's an oral tradition at the time of Jesus. But what's helpful is we can actually look into the Mishnah and get some insight into potentially what they were thinking and why they were asking some of the questions that they were for Jesus. For example, is it against the Sabbath to heal? Can you heal on the Sabbath? It depends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my gut response to that before digging a little deeper into the Mishnah would have been, no, you can't heal on the Sabbath. But then I started reading how they were trying to work this out. And there's a few references to, well, it depends. If it's life-threatening, then absolutely you can heal on, on Shabbat, on the Sabbath. But if it's not life-threatening, then you can't. And that already seems helpful to me because I I often think of the Pharisees as being so unreasonable. But if you think about that, then it's like, okay, no, they were humans caring about other humans. They just had this criteria that was like, well, you shouldn't heal if it's not life-threatening. And what does Jesus do in in this story? He heals someone who isn't experiencing a life-threatening thing. He, He was born blind. He's lived a long time. And so we get just a little bit of context that's helpful. And so perhaps that's why the Pharisees go straight to a how question. Okay, well, how did he heal you? And again, how did he heal him? What was what did he make? He made mud. He made mud. Now, when I was looking through the Mishnah and like reading scholars and some commentaries, couldn't find anywhere where it says you can't make mud on the Sabbath. 
But there was a passage that one of the commentaries pulled on, which was where it talks about how to make bread and the fact that you're not supposed to knead on the Sabbath. And in order to make mud, you would have to take the spit and then knead it together to make mud. And this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing, right? They're trying to figure out, okay, this is a different situation, perhaps the making mud situation, but what have we already talked about in our oral tradition that might help us interpret this circumstance? So one group might look at this and say, oh, he's kneading into the mud. So that's obviously breaking Sabbath. Another group looks at that and goes, yeah, but he healed him. So that just changes what happens in the story. And then there's one more piece I think that we need to pull on, which is what does Jesus ask the guy to do as a part of the healing journey? To go wash himself. To go wash himself. And depending on how far he has to walk, that's going to be a big deal on Sabbath, right? Because you weren't supposed to walk only a certain distance. I think it's a thousand yards each way. Is that right, Bill? Yeah, I think so. And so if this guy was around 1,300 yards away, Hmm. then Jesus is asking him to break the Sabbath to go to the pool and to come back. And so Jesus isn't just breaking the Sabbath in their eyes. He's like, he's spitting on the Sabbath as much as he's spitting on the ground to Mm -hmm. help bring healing to this guy. And so they're so divided. But again, I want us to go back to where we started this conversation. What are the Pharisees' fears and concerns that are making them respond in situations like this? Well, I think that's especially where the value of the context of where we find ourselves in John is helpful because he's experiencing increasing opposition. There's Mm -hmm. a rivalry from their standpoint as Jesus's popularity increases. And of course, now having added to his incredible ministry resume, the healing of someone born blind, something that had never happened before in recorded history, they were threatened. So I think that there was uh, even greater desire among some, in addition to all the things you just kind of laid out, to kind of put him down a peg because of all the growing enthusiasm. We see the same thing happens when he raises Lazarus from the dead, that there's an increased amount of popularity, which comes with it, increased amount of scorn and criticism from those, some of them, not all, but those who were in power and who felt like his position of influence was a threat to them. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it, Rasul. I think there are also a couple of other components. There's that religious component of because of his frequent violations of the Sabbath, as they interpreted it, he was a threat to Judaism. Because of the cultural pressures of Hellenism that you talked about, there's that threat that Mm. they felt pressure from. And then nationalistically, There was the threat of Rome. I Mm -hmm. mean, there had been times when personalities had risen and it had created riots and the Romans had come in and just absolutely squashed those things. And there's almost a sense in some of these leaders as you move through the Gospels, we're not sure we're going to survive another one of those because Rome's just too strong. So Mm -hmm. I think there are a variety of forces at work here, but you're right. The threat to Judaism was probably front and center in their thinking. Yeah, long before Jesus healed this guy, the Pharisees were concerned about their culture. They were concerned about their community in a similar way to exactly what Elisa described earlier, that we are often concerned when we think about what it means to be a Christian today in our culture. That's why they were so divided in this story. They saw this miracle. Both groups are amazed, but one group 
in particular is really uncomfortable because they see Jesus as having no regard for the things that they feel are important. They saw a sinner where the blind man saw a prophet and the story gets even more complicated from there. Mm, More complicated, really. Well, these extra layers of context certainly do help us understand more where the Pharisees were coming from, right? Their tensions, uh, their questions and concerns were present long before this event, and maybe even are somewhat understandable when we put ourselves in their place, but uh, we'll soon see that they take this to a whole new level. And I hope it's a caution that we consider for ourselves, too. Because as we continue going deeper into the story, we get to what Daniel calls the saddest part of the story, should have been the happiest. I mean, this guy is seeing for the first time, but it's not a happy part. And with the Pharisees, a couple of new characters also get introduced into the story. The blind man's parents see their freshly healed son, and they've got a decision to make, a decision that uh, could carry some pretty serious consequences that make a happy event a conflicted event for them. So we're in the weeds in this story, to say the least. (laughs) So let's just keep going. Uh, John 9, verses 18 through 23. Bill, would you read that for us? Sure thing. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Mm. Yeah, so the disciples and Jesus passed this man who was born blind, And the disciples ask a theology question about God's judgment. And Jesus makes it about his light and recreating by helping this man see. And then the neighbors respond by being confused. And some of them think it's the same man that they've seen their whole lives begging. Others say he must be a different guy because now he can see. Mm -hmm. So then they get the Pharisees involved and... That always clears everything right yeah, up, right? that's right. <laughs> so then it gets even messier because the Pharisees go and talk to the neighbors. They've talked to the man, and now they call the man's parents because they're just not believing what's happening in this story. And that's where this starts, right? The Jews did not mm-hmm. believe that he had been born blind. I think this part of the passage to me, Daniel, is the most poignant part of it. Mm. And as a parent, the most emotional part of it, because all of us are parents. And we remember during those months of pregnancy where we would think about, I wonder what they're going to be like. I wonder what they're going to do. I wonder what their life, their future is going to be. And you kind of almost, without realizing you're doing it, you build a bunch of dreams for what this child is going to become. And then he's born blind, and you know that those dreams aren't going to come true for him. Yeah. And now, on the day that they should be having the biggest party they've ever had in their lives, they're having to defend themselves, and they're fearful of being excommunicated. 
Yeah. I, I just think it's mm-hmm. a heartbreaking part of the story. That is so good. And so to be thrown out of the synagogue, I mean, what a threat. That would be yeah. thrown out of all of the support, you know, when you have mm-hmm. a special needs child, if you will. You know, everything you've come to depend on, boom, now you're thrown out of your own community. Yeah, yeah. yeah the uh, contemporary English version says that the man's parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. The leaders had already agreed that no one was to have anything to do with anyone who said Jesus was the Messiah. So it wasn't just like this technicality of we can't Mm -hmm. just gather on the Sabbath to worship, but that was a symbol to say that you have to be completely removed from the community. And what's interesting there too is the fact that his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews for anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Mm. What was the question that the Pharisees asked the parents? Did they ask them, was Jesus the Messiah? No, they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? And then how does he now see? Yeah. And so they answer the first half. Yes, it's our son. But the second half, they use a little technicality <laughs> to get out of having to answer that. And what's that technicality? Yeah. He, he's old enough to answer on yeah, his own. I love yeah. that. Because of that fear, again, of being thrown out of community life, thrown out of where all your friends and neighbors worship God together, the place where you are invited to grow in your faith, uh, all the celebrations that culturally are celebrated throughout the weeks and the months and the years being separated, alienated from all of that. That's their fear. It would also separate you from job opportunities, all kinds of natural relationships in a community. You would kind of be persona non grata and just banished from all of those things. And did they have other family in the community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So after that interaction... What happens in verse 24? They go back to the man. Mm-hmm. And uh, they still aren't hearing the answers they want to hear, so they're going to keep asking the question until they do. Yeah, and what do they say to the man? That's interesting. Give glory to God. We know this man mm-hmm. is a sinner. <laughs> so now they've come to a conclusion. Yeah. Whereas in our last conversation, they were still debating the matter. And they're leading the witness into what mm-hmm. they want to be said. You know, they're giving him a little clue. And they're using religious language as a form of pressure. You know, come on, give honor to God, like glorify God. You know, we know he's a sinner. So say the right thing. Say what we want you to say about who Jesus is. I think it's also interesting, Rasul, that when they say give glory to God, that was inherent in Jesus's comment at the very beginning when he said, this man was born blind so that the works of God might be mm. performed in him, so that God would be glorified, mm. in a sense, uh, by his healing. And now the healed man is being asked to give glory to God, which is exactly what the story was for in the first place. Mm. Yeah, so we see that the Pharisees have finally agreed that this man has been healed, right? So they're they're finally at least giving in to that part of the story. Okay, yeah, he's got to be the guy. We didn't believe it, but now that we've talked to his parents, something's happened here. And so I think part of exactly what you all are pulling on there, Rasul and Bill, is give glory to God. So God has done something to heal this guy. 
but it obviously can't be because of Jesus, because Jesus is a sinner, right? So they're trying to separate those two ideas. How does the man respond to that in verses 25 through 27? Maybe, Rasul, you could read that for us. The man replied, I don't know if he is a sinner or not. All I know is that I used to be blind, but now I can see. What did he do to you? The Jewish leaders asked. How did he heal your eyes? The man answered, I have already told you once and you refuse to listen. Why do you want me to tell you again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love that. <laughs> Throw a little sarcasm at him. Yeah. <laughs> I think we, we also sense a little bit of maybe a frustration and annoyance here too, mm, yeah. right? Like you're asking me to say this again? Like how many times do I need to say it? Is this a court of law where you're a lawyer and asking me all these different angles, the mm-hmm. same question to see if you can mm-hmm. create some discrepancy in my different story accounts? Like what's going on here? Mm-hmm. You guys can decide whatever you want. <laughs> I just know that a few hours ago I couldn't see and now I can. Yeah. yeah. It's just like he's getting asked the same question over and over again. How do the religious leaders respond to what he says, <laughs> verses 28 through 33. You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. Mm-hmm. And that's what this whole thing is in their eyes, the Pharisees' eyes. That's what they're unpacking here, right? Yeah. As, Who are you yeah. following? Are you following Jesus or are you following Moses? We're followers of Moses. Hence the passionate defense of the law, passionate defense of the Sabbath. This is what yep. it means to be a Jew, to be a part of the nation of Israel is to be disciples of Moses. And how does the man answer? The man answered, here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Yeah, so this whole situation is not fitting into this box that the Pharisees want it to fit into. And that's where all of this tension is really starting to bubble out. And what's interesting, Daniel, is when he says all that stuff, they respond by answering the question the disciples asked at the beginning of the chapter when they said, who sinned? They say to the blind man, you were born entirely in Mm -hmm. sins. Mm. Who do you think you are trying to teach us? Yeah. And it's interesting too. I don't know if you see this in there, but it seems like the more that this man that was born blind is being invited or challenged or questioned (laughs) to retell the story, it's like he's getting more and more confident as he retells Mm. the event of who Jesus is. At first, it was Jesus. Then who do you think he was? Well, I think he's a prophet. And then just the more he's explaining this story, the more confident he's becoming that Jesus is something special and has done something very unique for him. But the sad part of this story is what happens as a result. Mm, They throw him out. So the parents aren't thrown out, but he is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This to me is the saddest part of the story because, you know, here you have this amazing miracle of a man being born blind. He's already spent his whole life separated from everyone. And he finally can see, he can finally enjoy and participate in communal life together in a different way than he ever was able to before. And yet the result of this story is that they cast him out of the synagogue. Mm -hmm. The very fear that his parents had 
would happen to them is what happens to their son. What are some of the emotions that you feel as you think about where we are in the story now? Well, I guess I'm still sitting with the parents not able to celebrate, and mm-hmm. now their son's excommunicated from synagogue and community life. I mean, as a parent, I, I'm just kind of feeling pretty crushed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm also yeah. feeling inspired by this formerly blind man's deepening conviction and I kind of um, Mm -hmm. can experience Mm -hmm. some sense of I've been there you know of being Mm -hmm. among skeptics or those who might even mock the faith and at one point being more tentative but then as you think and reflect more about what Jesus has done in your life becoming more bold too. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing the Pharisees who were divided and unsure And as you pointed out, Daniel, maybe came from a good place in their heart of wanting to keep the law and the nation pure. But now they've turned into a a mob unit of, you know, Mm -hmm. everything's about sin and he's the worst in the world and, you know, you're going to pay for it. All of the questions that they came to in the beginning, now they've come to the conclusion that the formerly blind man was a sinner, that Jesus is blasphemous that you know it just it's just that they've gone straight into that rut and there's no turning around and I'm very struck too by not only have they turned but there's a choice for all of us you know the, the parents had a choice and they didn't make a choice to worship Jesus as Messiah and the man is has a choice and he he does identify him as a prophet and now he has consequences yeah yeah and I think I I get especially frustrated by the way that the Pharisees elevate themselves over this man at the end of the story too, where mm-hmm. like you were born entirely in sins. Who are you to yeah. teach us? So judgy. Yeah. And yeah. I wish I could say that I could just blame that on them as being that type of person. But I think what is also kind of troubling me at the end of this is not only being frustrated with the Pharisees for basically saying that I'm better than you <laughs> and then thinking of the times when I do the same thing. And I wish we could just tie up this conversation in a bow and make ourselves feel better about it. But I think if we really want to honor this part of the story, maybe the way we should end is to just feel that same separation, right, of being kicked out and all of the negative emotions that might come with that. And then we'll see how Jesus responds in our next conversation. As Daniel said, this really is the saddest part of the story. The rejection, the fear of losing the network of people that you do life with. That's a huge deal. And so we're going to let you sit with that for just a minute. But then when we come back to this, uh, we'll see some light. Like we said earlier in the podcast, this is a Jesus is the light of the world story. It's not a judgment story. And so let's take a short 60-second break. And then we'll wrap up part one of our study of John 9 and 10 here on the Discover the Word podcast. Here at Our Daily Bread Ministries, Bible engagement is front and center of all we do as a ministry. And one of the favorite things for our team here at Discover the Word is when we get the chance to connect with listeners who have become a lot like family. We love that we can come alongside one another to help each other navigate life with Christ as our guide. One of our Discover the Word friends wrote us a note to tell us how God was speaking into her life and into a season of transition that she was in through a particular series that we did. She said, that discussion was amazing, transforming. The understanding you've helped me to have has brought me great comfort. 
And you can help make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible accessible to people around the world by partnering with Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries financially. Visit our webpage at discovertheword.org and click the Donate button up at the top of the page. That's another way you can be part of our Discover the Word family. That's at discovertheword.org. Click Donate. So they say that our ability to see is the most dominant of all our senses. Our vision plays a critical role in basically every facet and stage of life. When we have it, we often take it for granted. But, you know, without it, we would struggle to learn, to walk and be mobile, to participate in school or work or a lot of activities. And yet globally, at least 2.2 billion people have some kind of vision impairment. I'm fortunate because I'm one of those. But my distance impairment has been helped with corrective lenses. But not everyone has access to that kind of help. And many are worse. I mean, it's estimated that 43 million people across the world live with blindness. Well, in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, we've been looking at a complicated story in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, of when Jesus healed a man of the blindness that he had experienced from birth. And as we'll see in this last part of the conversation, it's a story about not just physical blindness, but another kind of blindness that affects 100% of people, all of us. In our last conversation, we ended in a pretty sad spot where this man who had been born blind, who's been healed, is kicked out of communal life, is kicked out of the synagogue by the religious leaders. And it was a really ugly moment. And I am so thankful for this next verse. Um, Would somebody read John 9, verse 35? Don't read what Jesus says. Just read what happens before Jesus talks. Jesus heard that they had put him out and found him and said. Just finish there. Jesus heard he'd been driven out and found him. That is so powerful. The fact that he was driven out of the synagogue, driven out of communal life, Jesus hears this, and what does Jesus do? He goes and finds him. Doesn't that just scream of the lost coin, the lost son, the lost sheep? Jesus finds him. Mm. Really, the whole story of the Bible, right? In the garden, at the very beginning, the man Mm. and the woman eat the fruit they're not supposed to eat. They hide. What does God do? (laughs) He He finds them. He finds them. In Exodus, the people end up, in slavery in Egypt, what does God do? He finds him. He goes after him. He finds him. The very story of Jesus is the story of God becoming a human to rescue those of us who have been blind and who have been cast out of this relationship with God that the world was designed for us to have, that we were supposed to be in communion with God and walking with God. So God's rescue plan is, I'm going to go get them. And then even the way the whole story of the Bible ends. How does the story of the Bible end? Jesus returning mm-hmm. and at the end of the book that he uh, will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more sadness or dying. So there's mm-hmm. that sense of a return to reclaim us and to find us again. Yeah. And he will make his home with us, right? Yeah. We see this image of God's mm-hmm. home coming from the heavens down to earth for God to make his home with us. Mm. 
And so and it's he's like, going to talk about that in just a few chapters when he says, in my father's house are many mm, dwelling places. Mm-hmm. I'm going to prepare a place for you and will come again to receive you. I keep yeah. thinking of that praise song. Oh, the overwhelming, never ending, reckless love of God and how yeah. he'll leave the 99. And, you know, oh, it's just, that's beautiful, Daniel. Jesus heard that they had driven him out and found him. Yeah. Now that we've let that sit for a second, let's read chapter 9, verses 35 through 41 and hear how this part of the story doesn't come to an end because somehow all this is going to be about sheep and shepherds in chapter 10, (laughs) which is next week's conversation. But let's just kind of see how chapter 9 comes to an end. So chapter 9, verses 35 through 41. Maybe, Rasul, you could read that for us. Sure. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So chapter 9 begins with someone born blind and ends with people that are blind. Hmm. But before we get into that part of this passage, Jesus says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And so that's a very pregnant term, son of man. Where does it come from and what does it refer to? It goes back to the Old Testament. Um, and we see it in Daniel and I think in Ezekiel where it kind of refers to some kind of a messianic figure, but it's really fuzzy in the way that it's used. Yeah. And doesn't one of the gospel writers prefer that? As Matthew, a, I think. Matthew, uh, when describing yeah. Jesus as he's writing to a Jewish audience and really wants to stress Jesus' Messiahship. So this is John using that term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems that in Matthew, at least, it seems like that's the way Jesus most often refers to himself. To himself. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that, as you pointed out in prior conversations, that he is the sent one. And then he mm-hmm. sends the man to the pool that's yeah. called sent, and this son of man would echo that as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, something that's kind of uh, counterintuitive is that there's more, I think, resonance with Son of Man as a divine title of who Jesus is than Son of God, which there are instances mm-hmm. in the yeah. uh, Bible where Son of God in different, less specific ways throughout it, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. so it's just kind of interesting that Son of Man, you think, oh, it's just the son of a person. But in, right. but in the biblical lexicon and, and imagery, it's a much more specific mm-hmm and divine figure that we see, like uh, Bill was saying, in Ezekiel and Daniel. And some of that, too, Rasul, gets interesting because technically Jesus was not the son of a man. He was the son of a woman. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, unless it's referring to son of, like, mankind, which would be a way that they would reference it there. So maybe it's a kind of pulling on the thread that Jesus is this ultimate version of what it means to be human, too. And so he's mm. this messianic figure, he's a son of God, he's also a son of man, and as a result, the work that he does is referred to in the, the New Testament as he's the new Adam, right, showing us how to live. Right. And I'm mm. sure all of those themes, too, are coming into this as well. But it's interesting because 
the man responds, well, who is he? Tell me so I can believe in him, right? He wants to believe in this son of man. And Jesus says, you have seen him. When did the man see him? (laughs) Right then. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Unless it's referring to kind of a a spiritual seeing. Well, could be because he goes on and really has a a comment about spiritual blindness. So it Mm -hmm. could be both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. but that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, that this would have been the first time in the story that he would have visibly seen him because when Jesus sent him off to go watch, he was still blind. Yeah. And yet in that part of the story, he obeys Jesus. And so there's a way in which something about Jesus and the way he said it, the man believed it and went and did what he was supposed to do. Jesus talks in other places about having eyes to see and ears to hear. So this man in some ways has already been seeing to an extent who Jesus is. And yet for the first time to physically see Jesus is in this moment. Perhaps this is a hint that there's a spiritual seeing that might be different than just a physical seeing. Maybe there's more to the idea. And what is this man's response to Jesus? I believe. And he worships him, calls him Lord. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The worship is in particularly noteworthy. That's a strong word Mm -hmm. that an observant Jew would not have worshiped anybody but God. That's the first commandment. So like the fact that he's worshiping Jesus is a clear indication of him responding to him as divine, as a divine son of man, son of God, God incarnate. There's a progression too. He earlier reports that Jesus is a prophet, you know, Mm -hmm. so you see this progression in his belief. And it would be, I think, really good if the story ended right here, because then it would feel like we went through all this muddiness and all of these weeds and all that. And then we came out into the sunlight at the end of the story. (laughs) It was like, oh, he was healed. He worshiped Jesus. Story over. Roll credits. But that's not, Mm -hmm. that's not how this ends. I think Jesus says some of the most confusing things that he says throughout the story right afterwards. What does Jesus say? Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Oof. (laughs) What what is Jesus talking about now? (laughs) But who are the characters in this story that have been, at least in a spiritual sense, a mental sense, a psychological sense, the most confused, the most blind throughout the story? I mean, it seems pretty clear that the Pharisees are saying to Jesus, are you talking to me? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, are you, are you saying I'm the one who's blind? And uh, Jesus says some other stuff that gets a little bit tough. Yeah. Especially in that, the way the last conversation ended where they got so frustrated with this guy by the end that they're like, you've been, mm-hmm. you've been born entirely in sins. Who are you to teach us? There was a closed mindedness that they ended up at by the end of this story that is a, a form of blindness. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. It feels kind of like uh, in another place where Jesus said, the healthy don't need a physician. It's the sick who need a physician. And he's not saying that the Pharisees are healthy. He's saying they think they're healthy. Therefore, they're not going to respond to the help that he's come to give. Yeah, and I think that's helpful in this because if we think about the way this ends, perhaps this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus already said he's someone who brings healing to those who are spiritually, and in this case, also physically blind. But you have to be blind to be healed. And by helping the Pharisees become blind or recognize that they already are, then Jesus can meet them and 
bring them spiritual healing. And so I wonder if that's kind of the play on words that's happening here as Jesus begins to unpack this, because he is the light of the world, right? That's where we started the conversation in chapter eight. And that's what this whole story kind of is unpacking is that Jesus is the light of the world and he heals someone who's born blind Mm -hmm. and those who think they can see might actually be blind, which I think could also preach for us today as we think about how we tend to think of ourselves as the ones who see. And so there's a little red flag there for us in our own spirits of, ooh, do I see? And perhaps I need to be open as well to what Jesus is saying uh, for me. Yeah, you, you have so beautifully threaded this understanding of John chapter 9 and a little bit of chapter mm-hmm. 8 and where to go forward and look at chapter 10. But I'm hearkening back to John chapter 6, where Jesus yeah. says he's the bread of life. And in, in, in chapter 6, he also uses the same an- analogy in verse 36, as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. You know, he, this isn't like a, a new thing. You know, he has been building mm-hmm. this case his entire ministry. And it's at the end of chapter six that many disciples desert. You know, so, so we have this ongoing revelation of who God is and what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with yeah. the vision or the lack of that we have? Yeah. And we also see, I just think about in John 8, where he refers to himself as the light of the world that has come into the darkness. And so you see this connection mm-hmm. between him revealing himself as light and him giving people sight, right, out of out of darkness. And yet in both of these instances, the pharisaical response to these pronouncements or these demonstrations of who he is is increased resistance to it, which is why I think Jesus alerts them to the fact that your own stubbornness is causing you to be blind to who I am. And Mm -hmm. as I've been thinking about how would I summarize what I think Jesus is saying here, I think I would summarize it as Jesus saying something like, I came into the world to help those who are spiritually blind see and to help those who think they can see understand they're blind so that they can be healed too and see for real. And I feel like that's kind of the spirit of what's going on here. But I can already sense in all of us a little bit of confusion. Well, (laughs) somehow Jesus goes on to explain that confusion by, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way as a thief and a bandit. So somehow Jesus feels the need to explain everything that we just heard by talking about sheep and shepherds and declaring himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep which is what we'll talk about in our next episode. And I think that's an encouraging ending to the first episode of this two-part series. Jesus personally sought out the blind man after he was shunned by the religious leaders. Jesus went to him. And he still comes to us today with the offer of healing us from our spiritual blindness so that we, as we will soon learn, can see him as who he is, the Good Shepherd. And I'm interested to see how this event in John chapter 9 is tied into and leads into John chapter 10. Daniel Ryan Day, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Rasul Berry are your study partners for this study of John 9 and 10. And I hope you'll plan on being part of the group with them when we get together next time to continue this here on Discover the Word. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus, the living word, 
in the pages of the Bible. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.